Hi, everybody, and welcome to the European VC podcast. I am alone here today because David is stuck in a bunch of construction work right next to his apartment, so he couldn't join us for this one. But today we have with us Max Botin. He is the founding GP at IQ Capital, a 700 million euro seat and early stage venture firm in London to back European deep tech startups. IQ Capital is investing out of a 185 million euro fund for and also has a 150 million euro growth opportunities fund. IQ has an established portfolio of over 60 companies and notable investments include Thought Machine, Paragraph and Niobolt. If you're listening in and love our show, do drop us a review, follow the pod, and subscribe at EUVC. Tear down this wall. It's more than just an alliance. This, this is a union of values, values. United and determined, we can serve as a model for other regions of the world. The nature of a problem, problem requires a European response. Europe is a story of new beginnings, new, new beginnings. Let's start acting, 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 acting. This show is not investment advice, and the hosts of this episode may be invested in the funds and companies featured. So, Max, you are a true veteran in our industry. So, I know it's quite a tall order that I'm asking you to now, but I will ask you to share your story about how you got into venture. Well, actually, my, my journey into venture started controversially in, in private equity. I um. I joined the firm, a telecoms focused investor after my university, who was actually kind of a bit of a mix. They were buying mobile licenses for mobile operators in developing countries and then creating a startup mobile operator. So I was part of the kind of first team of five that would send to build it from scratch. And so ironically, it was actually a startup experience, but in a, in a field that, that was well established and not really exploring new stuff all the time but full of technology full of challenges so that was that was good training ground and um i came i came to cambridge um afterwards to do my mba um bumped into a few people in the cambridge mafia and uh, was was incredibly lucky actually to be offered an opportunity to join an asset management firm to lead their seed stage investment practice in nw brown and that was the the, the next few years the next so five six years of my life where I ran a series of really small seed funds, co-investing with angels, investing in university spin-offs with the University Challenge Fund, and, and actually kind of learning that it's, it's bloody hard. And, it, you know, I was quite arrogant at the time, I suppose, in terms of thinking, oh, well, you know, I know how, how building tech companies work, and, and then, you know, then you learn that you don't, um, basically. And, um, and then I, I met my co-founders at Stacy and Carrie Baldwin. Um, we made a bunch of investments together and decided it was time to set up a firm of our own. So IQ Capital was born in 2005. We raised our first fund, which was 25 million. Seemed like a lot of money back then. And then the second one, third one, fourth one. Now we have a growth program as well. So you know, 20 years on, or almost 20 years on, it's uh, it's finally starting to um, to scale. I'd love to ask you. Max, because you just mentioned the Cambridge Mafia there. And everyone knows in, in Europe, we're not as, especially in venture, not as as marketing savvy as they are in the US. So everyone knows who the PayPal Mafia counts. But who counts the, the Cambridge Mafia, if you should mention a few? I know in my mind, I'm thinking about 
Krishna from Crane. I'm thinking about you and Carrie, of course, and, and the whole IQ team. Uh, and, and then I'd also think about Chris Wade, um, Andrea Traverson from, from uh, Amadeus. Who, who else are in that group that you'd say this is the... Um, well, I mean, uh, you know, there's kind of the institutional venture investor lot. And of course, you know, it would be amiss not to mention Herman Hauser there, the, you know, and the whole ARM community and, and how that sort of created, you know, the Cambridge phenomenon origins of consulting and linked to university that then born a few large companies um, that, that started spinning off new companies in, in return, you know, um, David Cleveley is, is, of course, an, um, Robert Sansom. Um, the the, the uh, Cambridge Angels as, a, as an ecosystem itself in terms of kind of angels. And, you know, there's too many fantastic names to add there. So, you know, Robert Swan, and, uh, you, you know, you, you literally can pick up any, any member there where uniquely it's a 60 technology entrepreneurs with experience with, of building successfully scaling their companies that, some of them, like Paul Forster, coming from from US after really massively hitting big big successes there. Some staying in the UK and then resurfacing in the ecosystem. I think that was a major driving force behind the success of Cambridge in, in um, as an ecosystem, and that all these tech entrepreneurs came back with the experience. Because I think in the early days, especially, experience was the way bigger gap than capital, although capital was very much, um, you know. 50 times smaller today. Yeah. I'm so, I'm so excited about having this conversation precisely today because in a couple of days I'm going to 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 the uh, an ecosystem event for the investors and and ecosystem players and and the uh, the founders of the Odin's robotics ecosystem. So I'm I'm really hyped about getting to tap your brain here about the Cambridge ecosystem and and what you've learned there. You've of course invested in in a company Quadsat uh, in in Odense. Uh, so you know it a, a tiny bit, and we're going to dive a bit more into it. But definitely, the focus here is on on Cambridge and what learnings we can draw from from the Cambridge ecosystem, and extend that to the rest of Europe. But before we go there, Max, I now want to take us to the take a stance round of this conversation. Take a And Max, I will ask you to comment on this quote by Sabina Wissander, which is... I think VCs add way less value than they think they do. They're less pivotal to the businesses they're advising. I think it was actually Vinod Kostler that famously said that 90% of VCs or 95% of VCs add negative value. I think it's, as many things, it's, it's much more complex than that. But we certainly try to start thinking about it with how do we make sure we don't have negative value to companies? Because, you know, I, I think way too many VCs are not very cognizant of that, that, you know, constant questions, you know, the overhead that they bring, the misdirection that they sometimes bring through their own uh, biases, uh, and the sort of empower, sometimes the power imbalance um, effect and so on. So number one thing is that make sure we don't add negative values, our mantra. And then secondly, we, we try to just say, look, the most important thing is to just be a good sounding board for the entrepreneur and for them to trust you to enough to share the hard challenges that they're facing. And then, and then we can 
we are good at certain things and we should just put it on the table and also be cognizant that the journey of a particular company could be different from experiences that we have had before. While patent recognition is useful, it can also be dangerous. So, so it's, it's a complex matter, but the, you know, I think, I think overall it's, it's a very good point. And I think VCs, especially the younger VCs are not thinking enough about it and, and, you know, not shutting up enough, quite frankly, um, to, to just listen and, and, and to, and to not to be too opinionated and affecting the founders too much. All right, Max. So now we're going to go into our deep dive section. And I want to ask you to really help us understand. And maybe this is the first question. Deep tech versus traditional venture. Can you really run it by the same playbook? Or is there one specifically for deep tech that one needs to know to be a successful investor in this space? I think deep tech is very different from traditional venture. I mean, if you actually go back to the origins, um, it was very converged. And if anything, the kind of Silicon Valley version of, of, of venture was started around a lot of deep tech and semiconductor. And then, and then we discovered software, and then we discovered the much easier ways of, of building companies where you kind of come up with an innovative model and then bang on a bit of software on top of that. And that gives you enough of a competitive advantage for 10, 15 years to build a big enough firm, scale it, and then exit it, and then do it all over again. So I think we were on the drugs of that kind of software-enabled innovation for, for a bit too long. I mean, obviously, with AI and, and a bunch of other new techniques, there's sort of new, um, you know, and it's a big field and will continue to be a big field. But the difference in deep tech is that you have to be a lot more disciplined about, A, the market that you are addressing. You can't iterate. You can't move as fast in, in terms of changing your proposition. You have to go after a market that exists today rather than may or may not exist at some point, And you're just testing whether the demand is there for this new idea. So you have to be very, very focused on whether the market is there today and will be there in a few years. You have to be very technology-centric and really examine carefully whether there's hardcore innovation which is defensible and which is moving the needle sufficiently enough for it to be noticeable. And we, we have a kind of 10x in, in the back of our mind in terms of performance, although it does depend industry on, by industry very much. And sometimes a 30% is, is groundbreaking. And it needs to be addressing a massive, the, the market opportunity needs to be big. I think a lot of deep tech companies, especially the spin-offs from, from universities, are, are cool technologies, but they're not necessarily scalable into a big, big market opportunity. And the two things need to come together. And lastly, deep tech hardly ever works out of the box from get-go, where a year from now, your SaaS metrics are this, and, and you are better than the market average. And, and then two years from now, you kind of get the commercial, you don't get the commercial feedback. You have to stick with productization. You have to get, you have to listen very carefully to what your customers are saying. So you're way longer in that territory of not having objective market feedback on your product um, in terms of actual checks written. And that is sometimes very difficult because sometimes in year three, you have to make a call whether or not it's still going to be a success or it's time to actually pack up. Can I ask you, because there's a lot to unpack there and we'll dive deeper on on the points you just said, but I want to ask you from a, because we, we're going to have many listening in that are 
not deep tech investors as such, but are likely starting to see the same movement as you also somewhat described and many authors on the podcast have described that we are seeing more and more solutions needing hardware to be integrated and 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 thus you're starting historically that's often where you've said okay when when there's hardware then it's deep tech no no doubt about it right and and you get many of the qualities of uh, of course you can't do hardware without it being deep tech but but that's where you start to have many of the qualities of of a deep tech startup that that requires typically more capital intensive operations it requires longer time to market you have a supply chain you have to manage all of a sudden all those things that that really make this space harder in quotation marks than 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 what you might call traditional venture do you think that it's viable for a non tradition or non deep tech rooted firm to start venturing into this space and if you were to say to them this is what you really need to keep in mind when you do so, what would that be? I mean, first, um, certainly in our definition of deep tech, it's not only hardware. Yes, hardware innovation is almost always deep tech because, you know, because it linked to patents and inventions and so on. But we, in fact, for the first two funds, we were, uh, for the first fund, we certainly didn't do any hardware. It was software only. All, but the needle in software is moving all the time. So, of course, sort of, yeah, a novel AI is 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 a big factor, and and you can find lots of deep tech within it. So you know, have a lot of algorithms, kind of rather than applications as a kind of, and a lot of embedded software as well. So I think, in fact, the majority of hardware investments that we make have a significant software component. The pure pure hardware is 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 quite thin, but. Um, Thankfully, we see a lot of um, a lot of appetite for deep tech now. A lot of firms are starting to look at it very seriously, trying to differentiate. What what are the learnings? I mean, you you have to appreciate that you are operating using different metrics than you do in pure SaaS companies, and it means that you have to develop very strong affinity and conviction on the company and its, and the market opportunity. And then you basically iterate on the productization. You have to be big believer that your tech is changing the world in terms of performance. And then you just iterate in product. You think about, you know, the market opportunities that you go after. What's the low hanging fruit? What's the longer term? So, so it just has to be, and it, and you have to have more patience because the good thing in deep tech is that we do see a lot of companies being acquired, driven by the technology attraction early days and it's often a good plan b for companies that are struggling to scale for whatever reason or maybe going slow but um, for the ones that are successful you often have to, to wait for five six years before you really see categoric lift off in terms of product in the market selling in sort of tens of millions and people queuing up to get it so so you have to think very differently and the rest of your team has to think very differently as well because what we sometimes see is that in companies that have some GPs going after deep tech, some not. When you are in a company for three years, are they going to support it as a firm? Because it's just like, well, what's what's your results? Show me the money, kind of thing. And yeah, it's hard. I imagine it can be hard to be in the uh, IC or <laughs> conversations there as as the one person that have accepted that deep tech is different from 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 traditional venture. I can imagine that. I'd love to ask you how do you, how have you built the 
IQ capital firm to go after this opportunity and what and how does that make IQ different from other firms? Well, I mean, some of it was was just sort of serendipity. Um, you know, my partner, uh, Ed and, and Carrie, Ed started in, in a kind of Cambridge consulting company, um, uh, Generics, um, or Syngentia now, um, as, as the kind of head, head of their due diligence practice and gradually, and a lot of the stuff that they were doing was, of course, Deep Jack, and then they started the predecessor venture firm in mid-90s. And um, and sort of cut that he is doing some at least techno- highly technology driven investments. Um, and of course, when we started in Cambridge, all the companies around us, or virtually all the companies around us, were deep tech. So our edge was that we knew the ecosystem and we had invested in a few businesses. Um, and all we were seeing was deep tech. So so we were also passionate about it. Um, and you know, Ed in particular is is a sort of big physicist and and. Carrie and I are kind of bringing a different perspective on it in terms of kind of, you know, customer journey, growth, um, team building, and, and so on. And, and back then, it actually was a very good combination, um, uh, certainly. And, you know, with time, we learned more and more and more. So um, I think, and but yeah, we did get a lot of people kind of going like, why the hell are you doing this? You know, you should be investing in e-commerce and apps. And, you know, this is where the quick money is. But we we just felt you know this is what we we feel passionate about. There's a huge amount of impact. We're big deliver, believers that deep tech is is great. It's the only long-term solution to big challenges that we're facing as humanity, as society, and and you know and as the venture industry grew, I think it's now become very clear that you know without the big edge, long-term competitive advantage, however old that sounds, it's very difficult to big um, to build big art performers and particularly predict which which companies are going to become the big art performers if you're investing at seed and seed an early stage because you know software gets you know um rebuilt so quickly now and and, and so on so so that, that that you know it was a little bit of serendipity with a bit of um fit with the skills and mix that we had the differentiation that we had within that space which which then Thankfully, the industry that we started investing in kept growing and growing, and then we increased our differentiation. And of course, now we have 15 people in the investment team. Most of them are way smarter and, and, and more experienced in, in, in a particular vertical than, than, than we are, and, and that's fantastic. And I'd love to ask you specifically about that part, because do you, have you built IQ as a, might I call it a thesis-driven investor? Or is it more opportunities-driven, meaning you, you have investors within these verticals and then you scout for the best opportunities there? Or do you have built theses around robotics as an example? We've always been a mix. So we do have what we call, you know, so Friday, Friday tech meetings where we look at, you know, the advances in science and, and the potential impact within the commercial opportunities. And, and then to the extent that we see that something has really changed, we start to go proactively after that opportunity. But equally, um, in deep tech, I think it's very difficult to be, given that the space itself is actually very broad um, and you know, spans from you know, tech bio to robotics to, to even some, some elements of fintech, but you know, fintech was an edge. You have to be very cognizant that you will never be the cutting edge um, in terms of understanding certainly the technology opportunity. And there could be a breakthrough invention that six months ago nobody could even pre- could ever predict. So being th- 
deemed only investor is only possible if you start to focus on a very narrow field like, I don't know, quantum, for example. But then the question is, is the whole field going to really perform? Um, what What's the advantages? We've chosen to be a relatively generous firm within deep tech because we feel that the journeys of companies in every vertical in deep tech are actually not dissimilar. And the sort of thinking process about assessing them, helping them, scaling them is actually very similar. Could I ask you just before we move on to the next section, because we've We've spoken about deep tech here, and and I know from previous conversations between us, you have a very clear definition of what you see as deep tech, and I think that it, it I, I've always thought that's a very thoughtful one. So I think it's it would be cool to bring that one up so that everyone knows this is actually what we've been talking about now. You know, the kind of the broad space of deep tech is you know a scientific or engineering innovation that has a breakthrough in it and is moving the needle performance wise which is also defensible, so whether it's patent or know-how, it needs, and it needs to be addressing a big market opportunity uh, worth tens of billions of dollars. So um, we say that some, sometimes a good test is to say if 50 engineers can rebuild your company or your, your product in less than two years, that's definitely not deep tech from our perspective. The, the, the opportunity here is, is, is then to think, Within the broader deep tech space, what's the right mix of investment opportunity? There are things like, I don't know, f- fusion or, um, or even quantum, which for us, it's kind of too much on the deep tech end. So for us, we focus on investing where we can see a product in the market with some customer feedback within a you know, couple of years of us writing the check. Um, we, we feel that it's very important to stay connected to the end, end user. And staying in the lab too long is possible. And there are, you know, in life sciences, for example, there's plenty of successes there. And, and again, there are different fields. But we're just focusing on things where we we can see the productization journey uh, with with the end result relatively quickly. And of course, in real life, it sometimes does take twice or three times as long because you can't predict it. But if you know at the beginning that it will take forever, that's that's a hard space for venture for venture money. And hopefully, the industry will continue to. Uh, mature in being able to address those opportunities too. And it's great to see that people are investing in fusion and other things, but it's not something that we we would do at, at this point. One final question before we go on to the next section, because just on that timing point, do you think that, because I've heard some argue that in deep tech, we should maybe start thinking about not raising tenure funds, but it should be on another timeline. What 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 is your take on that? Would you say yes for sure from a founder VC perspective, but just the LP appetite for something that right off the bat has a different duration is just not going to fly. So why bother? Well, I mean, to be honest, I'm slightly confused about about that whole debate. I mean, if you look at the data from the large fund of funds, which is relatively public, an average life of a VC fund is something like 16, 17 years. That's across all fields, right? Some of the longer ones are 22, 23 years. Fair enough, That's the, a lot of it is driven by a long tail of small investments. And the question is, when do you actually deliver the big, the, the most of the upside to the LPs? And, and that's, be, yes, because the deep tech journey early takes longer than, than, say, in software space. It typically means that if you're looking at the time that it takes to scale a company, it could take longer. But on the opposite side, if you're bringing a product which is five times, ten times better than competitors to the market, 
it will scale much faster and often with less capital. So it's a bit of a trade-off. I think, you know, yes, would I welcome um, uh, slightly longer time time frames? We we are very open to our piece and saying that, you know, we do want to have extensions and, and it, it we aim to re- return 1x DPI by so year 7, which is, which is quite common for the industry, and then deliver the bulk of the upside by the end of year 10. Uh, but it often we genuinely do expect the funds to have some companies that take longer to realize. I think it all goes back to the appetite for risk. Yes, as an industry, we would welcome slight, somewhat longer funds, I'm sure. But you have to appreciate that ultimately it's LP money and, and not everybody is prepared to take um, a liquidity freeze for, for that long. So, Are you seeing an opportunity like uh, Fusion that you mentioned just before that you would actually kind of love to pursue, but with the current state of the market and the fact that you raised 10-year funds, it's not for us. Or is it more about, well, it's just the tech is not there yet, so we'll get there, but maybe just in fund five instead of fund four. Yeah, I mean, I think we just need to see. And, and you know, I mean, there are certain verticals within it where you could argue conceivably that you could see a, a win and quantum similarly. You could see a win in sort of three, four years in terms of commercial traction. And certainly we have a couple of quantum investments and we've seen that happen and with you know within edges or you know selling the shovels to the market type of stuff I, I i think you know when you the reality is that that the maturity of the industry has already been happening for a while you know it was difficult to imagine a spacex which is privately funded or a tesla or you know some of the battery startups the you know the next corn called boom being being privately funded by venture you know all of that is very capital intensive and very long term and yet it has happened the 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 point is that uh, you know i think i think we're getting there i think we as a firm will i hope that we will will be in a position to do that too um as as we as we progress our thinking and 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 mature as well and and convince our peace that that those returns are real it's just that they take longer Amazing. Now let's head into the shadow section. So now, Max, I would love to ask you to give a shout out to Cohen Master Angel or LP for just being plain out awesome. Andy Phillips. Why him? It's a slightly unfair thing because Andy is 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 our advisor and um, he he is very instrumental. And Andy, he he was. The co-founder of Active Hotels, which essentially became the European part, non-US part of Booking.com, and that was when he was in his 20s. And since then, he's done an amazing number of investments, which have been all successful. He has great impact on companies. He gets involved. We actually have a number of of people. You know, I mentioned David Cleveley, David Gammon, Robert Swan, Richard Little, of course who are all technology entrepreneurs who built multiple businesses and have come back to be angel investors. And they all share the same traits and we're just very big on, on bringing those kind of super angels in syndicates alongside us. And I plucked this in there with a scratch sound because I thought what you just said there was the best possible segue to get into a conversation about the Cambridge ecosystem and what has, of course, made that so amazing. And then after that, go into what can we learn from it in Europe. 
So you just said it very correctly, right? You, you've got this Cambridge ecosystem with a Hallmark University. Uh, I should probably say Hallmark Universities. And then you've got the, I think, earlier than, the, than many places in Europe, the, 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 the repeat entrepreneurs that are reinvesting their wealth. And you had a very early also um, coming together of VCs there. But, but really, I want to put this on you, Max, and tell us the story as you see it and why you think that, that the Cambridge ecosystem is, is, is one that, that has gotten so successful. Well, I think there, there are a few pillars. Um, one, of course, it was always a very, very successful uh, technology university, and you know, um, which has, over the years, has come up with a ton of world-changing inventions from you know, the DNA structure to um, or discovery of the DNA to you know, jet engines and so on. It's just that it was never any good at commercializing it or had any interest. In fact, in, when the university started thinking about entrepreneurship, it was a very, very controversial subject and it was considered very impure for an academic. It was almost dirty to be involved in, 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 in that. So a combination of you know, global talent and, and, and being, being sort of successfully established as, as an inventor of technology that is changing the world, coupled with um, a, a very sort of um, academic attitude to, to commercial rights, which um, actually helped Cambridge, and it's interesting to contrast it in Oxford, because Cambridge, Cambridge's IP policy from the very beginning has always been that the inventor owns the IP, and the university only gets um, um, a stake in that if, if, if it's sort of commercial co-funding, or the university is investing, or helping with IP production, or something like that. Plus, colleges um, wanting to to be having commercial interest and actually wanting to establish it. So, you know, the Cambridge Science Park and sort of Trinity's in, in, involvement there, St. John's Investment and St. John's Innovation Centre back in the 70s to sort of accommodate was driven some, somewhat by the kind of commercial angle, um, but somewhat uh, at the belief, with the belief that supporting entrepreneurship was important. And of course, the consultancies came up around the same time and everything else. So the point, the point was that, so one, IP, strong IP, or two, support in academics, getting that IP for little cost. And three, after a while, and with some successes and failures, we always joke that the one thing that drives innovation most is a professor from the neighboring lab parking his Ferrari in, in, in the car, car park. You know, the people have seen that innovation can be successful um, they have seen it as a path of proving that their inventions have an, uh, a real angle. And then, of course, they, they, they saw um, a number of, uh, or Cambridge had seen a number of biggish successes. And that and success brings success. The Cambridge phenomenon was labeled um, by the 80s. And, um, and then it really started becoming uh, the hub spot for, for innovation and attracting capital uh, with that. Repeat entrepreneurs that have then chosen Cambridge as a place to be a bit like you know Stanford and um, and and the kind of U.S. parallels there, and and I think actually the 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 angel community in particular has played a big part in in um, helping the new uh, entrepreneurs avoid the mistakes and 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 be kind of good mentors, not just investors. So um, those, all of those were were elements in in Cambridge's. Um, relatively quick success, and and you know people say there's you know different data, but five or six thousand technology companies around, you know 
20 plus business you know science parks in in town and so on and so forth some some big successes and and i think all of that then helped to bridge the gap in terms of expertise so people started coming back from the us so it's not just about the entrepreneurs it's the productization people marketing sales and so on so and that's what become that's when it becomes a true ecosystem because you know that it's an environment where a company can genuinely perform better than somewhere else and that's why we were very cambridge centric for many years but then we've we've started seeing you know very similar things in oxford london bristol birmingham and beyond and very similar conversion of technology talent to commercial success throughout europe which is why we're now investing uh, not just in the uk but throughout throughout that was my next question right because you commenced this investor that has been very cambridge centric and 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 has done a whole lot in that ecosystem and and now you're 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 lifting your eyes and looking out to the rest of europe and can can see the amazing innovation happening there and also setting sights on those and doing investments there as i said you know my little town of odens <laughs> are, are welcome you to invest in quadsat and 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 that of course is is a huge success for the ecosystem because iq capital comes with the respect uh, that you do. So when you put your money there, that matters to the to, to the ecosystem. And that, of course, is happening across all of Europe and many of these hubs. But I would love to ask you, how do you think about that approach to the rest of Europe? Are you thinking of it as, as ecosystems that you're penetrating or hubs that you're penetrating and, and going after like you had with Cambridge? Or are you thinking of Europe more as a We'll see what comes in through the funnel. I think you know that's that's actually a very good question because because it's a very challenging jump to make for a fund because to be a truly pan-European fund and invest with the same strategy of you know two-thirds seed, one-third Series A first checks that we do in the UK, you have to have ground presence in all core ecosystems and not just be there be there for years because you know i always joke about cambridge that you know it can be a sequoia and you can come and knock on the door but the question is which door are you knocking on because there's a thousand doors that you need to be knocking on and connecting because you know it's lots of disparate parts and you know i mean big brands of course it, you know are known and it helps but the, the the reality is that you need to be connected to the researchers, you need to be connected to angels, you need to be connected to the university communication, to lawyers, advisors, and, and so on and so forth. And more so, not just connected, be trusted by them, because you've been there, done that for years, and they know how you behave and that you're sort of local, and, and but also a bit global. So I think for Europe, it's something, it's a journey for us, and we're starting to do it in certain places, but it will probably take another five to 10 years for us to really firmly establish ourselves and grow sufficiently to be there. So most European companies for us is inbound where where we've built enough of a reputation of a, of a good deep tech investor who is helping companies to scale. And that's when they come at sort of seed plus series A stage to us because they want our experience as well as the check and, and, and hopefully we'll be able to write you know, bigger and bigger checks as we scale. All right always am profoundly amazed at the fact that entrepreneurship and venture requires such a balance of extreme patience as well as extreme impatience in the sense that we're all 
working hard every day to 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 make us ourselves move faster. But at the same time, we also have to recognize we're working on a five ten year horizon. And obviously, for the same the same thing when IQ chooses to look to the rest of Europe, and the same thing for European ecosystems when they look to build up those ecosystems like Cambridge. But with that, I want to take us into the quick fire. <laughs> and now the quick fire. Max, what advice would you give your own 10-year younger self? Be more confident. Believe that your conviction is, um, is, is the right one and, and stick with it and, and, and go after it. What are your top tips for emerging VCs across Europe who are fundraising? It's going to be tough to focus on aligning yourself to the investors that can be helpful and you can be helpful to them. And a lot of that is, is private, private money, technologists, technology entrepreneurs who could come with more than just money into your fund and you could actually bring something to them that they're not seeing directly as well. What's the most counterintuitive thing you've learned since you've been in venture? Probably the most counterintuitive is, is that more help to companies is not always positively correlated to, to the outcomes and in fact it's often negatively correlated. So your big successes don't necessarily need a huge amount of help from you and you need to know when to step back. But, but equally, um, in, in those big outcomes, there could be very small interventions that can actually move the needle sufficiently that because of the scale, it can, the outcome can, can, be, can be big. So it's, it's kind of that match of involvement versus outcome. Amazing, Max. Thank you, everyone, for listening in for this episode of the European VC Podcast. Do drop us a review, only if you enjoyed it, of course, and follow the pod and subscribe at EU.VC. Thank you all. Thank you so much for having me. Tear down this wall. It's more than just an alliance. An alliance. This, this is a union of values. values. United and determined. We can serve as a model for other regions of the world. The nature of a problem requires a European response. Europe is a story of new beginnings, new, new beginnings. Let's start acting. acting.